The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello, you are listening to The Views Room. The world is watching Hong Kong, where an extraordinary standoff between police and protesters at a local university has captivated attention after more than five months of anti-government protests. I'm Yuna Galani, and I'm joined by my colleagues on the ground in Hong Kong, Robin Mack and Jeffrey Goldfarb. A siege on the campus of Polytechnic University extended into its third day on Tuesday. Although the size of the demonstrations across the city have shrunk, the clashes have grown in intensity, becoming more violent. The sight of billowing fires, water cannons, and gunshot wounds have shocked all of us familiar with Hong Kong as a peaceful and stable financial hub. Robin, maybe we can start with you. Thanks for joining us. So until recently, um, people in Hong Kong were pretty much able to live and go to work as normal. I mean, what's changed for you in this last week, you know, for you, your friends, your colleagues, you know, in practical terms? Yeah, I think um, so when a lot of these protests and demonstrations, um, they first started a couple months ago, they were largely confined to specific areas. They happened, you know, over the weekends and at night. So for ordinary people going to and from work or school, it was quite easy and fairly manageable. But recently, you know, there have been these really violent clashes between protesters and uh, the police, you know, all over the city. You know, over the past few days, we've had some really key uh, tunnels, roads um, and highways that have been blockaded. Schools have been canceled. Train and bus services have been disrupted. Um, We've even seen tear gas fired in the central business district in the middle of a workday. So I think, you know, now it's pretty much everyone uh, in Hong Kong has been quite affected by this. And that could mean anything from you know, people having to add, you know, one or two hours extra onto their commute to, you know, those really unfortunate ones that are in the wrong place, wrong time, getting tear gas during lunch or on their way home. I can tell you that, um, yeah. you know, as, as a parent of a, in particular of a teenage girl, um, it has had some interesting side effects. I mean, of course, the hard thing is, is that when we talk about these things is like you don't want to lose sight of the fact that this is a pretty big moment in in the history of this region, um, right? I mean, you have people fighting for freedom and that's um, and democracy, which is which is incredible. But as you know, you do point out that there are, you know, there are sort of very small local logistical things that come into play. And I was saying, like, I mean, I have a teenage daughter, and you know, this city is, you know, if you've never been here, you. You know, you don't know that how, like, incredibly safe a place it was until five months ago. And, you know, so my 13-year-old daughter, my 11-year-old son could take, like, the subway by themselves, which is somebody coming from New York City was a pretty cool thing. And it was very cool for them, too. The first place we really got – sorry, go ahead, you know. You know, I was just saying, like, you know, the way we have, you know, Hong Kong is built, a lot of people probably also don't know that, you know, the shopping malls and the public transport and the offices, they're all kind of on top of each other. So you can't really avoid places where people would gather. You can't really separate the sort of places where protesters might gather from your workspace. It's all kind of on top of each other. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, so the first place we felt it was, you know, our daughter, like, couldn't, we couldn't allow her to go to shopping malls on the weekends. Right. Which is a big thing for a teenage girl. And even we were a little bit more lenient than, you know, than a lot of parents. But, you know, her friend's parents were like just had them on total lockdown. So she couldn't go anywhere. She was really upset about that. Now, of course, we've had kids, 
like without being able to go to school and basically doing virtual school from home for now coming up on an, day number eight tomorrow on Wednesday because the school's been closed again. Um, and that is driving a lot of parents batty. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're right. Like this, you you know, we can't lose sight of the fact that this is obviously first and foremost a very human and social problem, both for, you know, just ordinary families and Hong Kongers who, you know, are looking towards the future of their of the place they live. Um, but I think, you know, like, you know, how are companies dealing with this challenge? I mean, there must be some pretty interesting contingency planning going on, especially if people can't get to work. Well, a lot of it, I mean, a lot of it boils down to some of the things we've already been talking about, right? I mean, part of the appeal, I think at least for a Western expat like myself, is, you know, this this safe place, right? Like, and fun and sunny and, you know, easy to travel and things like that. And, you know, throughout these protests, you've seen the airports blocked at various times. You've seen now traffic, you now have kids at school and, you you know, home from school and you have you know, real violent threats uh, that can pop up anywhere. I mean, Robin and I were just talking about how, like, you just have no idea what's going to be targeted next. And so, you know, attracting talent, at least starting with the West, is going to, I think, be very difficult because, you know, people are going to look at this now and be offered a position in Hong Kong at a major bank or a consulting firm or something like that. And, like, who's they're going to go home and talk to their families about it, and people are going to be like, are you crazy? We're not moving to Hong Kong right now. And, you know, and then, of course, there's the mainland Chinese question, Robin. Yeah. So I know, I mean, so I'm from Hong Kong and, you know, I have been talking to, you know, a lot of my friends that, you know, and, and, you know, when we talk about the future, I don't think, you know, there is, you know, any of us sort of feel we are at that stage where, okay, we cannot stay in Hong Kong. We need to find some sort of alternative or exit plan for those of us lucky enough to have one. Um, but there is a real concern that, you know, a lot of the um, foreign talent, um, you know, they're just not going to come anymore. And, you know, we've already seen sort of a lot of, you know, hostility towards, particularly towards mainland Chinese, you know, students and, and workers in the city already. And that's, that's pretty concerning. The point is, like, you have, a, you have these Western, you know, Western expats who are going to be affected by it. You have mainland Chinese who are being targeted by a lot of the violence here, and they're going to be reluctant to come. And they're already, the tourist numbers are down in huge numbers. So eventually it will, it will trickle through to the workplace as well. And then, as Robin mentions, I mean, there, nobody, I don't think anybody thinks that Hong Kongers are getting ready to leave here. But we have, there is precedent for it, right? I mean, this happened back at the, right in the run-up to the handover from British rule back to Chinese, um, you know, rule. Uh, you know, you found a couple hundred thousand Hong Kongers all of a sudden were in Canada. And so, you know, there's a, there's a risk, there's a precedent for it, and there's a risk that it happens again. Yeah, when I look at the, um, you know, the, all the big international investment banks, say, for example, based in Hong Kong, you know, I remember from my days there, and, you know, I believe it's the same now, it still hasn't changed. You know, a lot of the Asia Pacific heads for the region are based there, and often they are foreign talent. And they're the people who it's going to be, harder to keep there. And it's that's kind of, I guess, a sort of a sort of very visible example of how that's going to sort of trickle down to business. But you're right. I mean, Hong Kong is a place where many visitors, especially financial professionals, enjoy living for career development, low taxes, high quality of life. And if you kind of remove the former, you know, this kind of uh, or the latter, I mean, the high quality of life, then you just sort of have low taxes. And there's one less difference between living there and, say, in Saudi Arabia, where you can get sort of some of the other things. But, yeah, it's a bit of a challenge. I mean, 
one big question we've been asking is, if not Hong Kong, where do companies go? Is there is there anywhere obvious? I mean, is Singapore a big winner from this? Well, it's interesting. There's, there's we had two very to your point on on people in particular and and making home bases. I mean, obviously Hong Kong is a huge hub. Something like fifteen hundred companies that have like regional headquarters in Hong Kong of some kind. The, we had two tiny examples this week of this phenomenon, like in the middle of these protests. Uh, who knows how much they were affected by it? But so Sokgen, a major, huge French bank, their head of Asia just left, um, abruptly kind of resigned, it looks like, based on the press release. And they've hired a woman from France who's going to come and be based in Hong Kong. So this announcement goes out. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing timing. I haven't had a chance to talk to her. I would love to find out, like, sort of what went into her thinking or if she even hesitated about taking the job or any of that. The other little example we have is a private equity firm in the United States called Vista that just put out a release um, this week as well. And they're putting their headquarters, their Asia, they're opening a new Asia headquarters, and they're putting it in Singapore. Now, I have no idea whether Hong Kong was ever on their shortlist or, you know, whether this is, but it was just kind of interesting to see those two financial releases come out. And, you know, Singapore is the obvious option I think a lot of people think of. I think it'd be hard to kind of really base yourself in too many other places in the region. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, within Asia, Singapore, you know, it does seem the most obvious choice, but I, I there are, you know, quite strict uh, visa requirements. So it's not as simple as just picking up and moving everyone and getting jobs in Singapore. Um, I guess, you know, London could be another one, but obviously with all the Brexit stuff, it's a bit uncertain. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, ultimately, if you ultimately, if you want to be a business that has any sort of that touches, you know, mainland China, you know, it's either Hong Kong or some other part of mainland China, I guess. And I think that's the challenge that everybody will have to grapple with. There is a, I mean, there is a question about whether or not people do move to the, like, it moves more people onto the mainland. Maybe Shanghai right. becomes more of a hub or a base of operations. I mean, as you say, Hong Kong, the, the real power of Hong Kong, the reason why so many people have regional headquarters here is because it does provide this gateway of capital and flight and travel onto the mainland and also out of the mainland, right? It's easy to get back and forth. There are increasingly financial kind of pipes that allow you to move money back and forth. It's ease of travel um, onto the mainland. Yeah. So there are a few places that offer those kinds of benefits. But with all the other things that we talked about, the increase of violence, tear gas, things like that, people will start to think about what other, you know, what else can they put up with in lieu of yeah. having to deal with this every day. And then the question is really, where does that, like, where, what else gets affected? I mean, if we look at Hong Kong, I think one of the other, like, most prominent symbols of its success around the world is this, you know, incredibly pricey housing market, you know, one of the most expensive in the world. And when you start thinking about all these issues that we We've just been talking about. I mean, what does that mean for one of the world's most expensive housing markets? Yeah, I think the for the you know the current unrest and political turmoil, it doesn't really quite change the long-term supply and demand dynamic. So Hong Kong, there is huge demand for affordable housing, but the problem is that there's just a land shortage, so there's just not enough. Um, and I think. You know, there's definitely going to be a price correction coming because the economy is quite weak. There's a recession coming. Unemployment is going to go up. But I think fundamentally, it's not going to be a huge crash, you know, like we saw during, you know, the Asian financial crisis or during the 2003 uh, SARS epidemic. I think the home prices corrected like something like 60 something percent. Um, you know, between 97 and 2004. So that that was quite wow. serious. Um, you know, and I think most people are expecting 
um, prices to come down next year, you know, by something as much as 20%. Um, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be uh, that painful as, as last time. I mean, you do see, I mean, you already see signs of it, right? I can tell you that like in my own neighborhood, only because we're getting probably evicted from our apartment, which is undergoing some renovation. Um, we started to look around the All pricing right. and, um, and, you know, prices have definitely come down, I would say 15 to 20%. We're on the south side of Hong Kong, so not really close to most of the action where a lot of the intense tear gas is being released and that kind of thing. But, you know, so prices are down 15 to 20% from when we were first looking two years ago, for sure. But then you also show up, I mean, you know, Robin, I'm sure you, you show up in restaurants and bars across Hong Kong and they are like empty. I mean, they are, there is like nobody in them. So you think about what these well, small businesses... Well, in a recession now, right? So, that, I mean, that would make sense. Yeah, that would fit with the data that we're seeing. For sure. But you just wonder, like, you know, the rents, the commercial rents yeah. here are incredibly high. So how are these small businesses going to cope if after a right. month or even two, like two months of cash flow out of a out of a restaurant or a bar yeah. is like crushing. And yeah. So, so even, I mean, even offices, I think now will be, you know, the, the office rents will come down. I think retail particularly has been hit um, really hard from all of this. So um, from the property market standpoint, yeah. Yeah. The retail I think I remember Hong Kong having this like really crazy turnover of restaurants anyway. I think it was always pretty hard to kind of, you know, reconcile the, as you're saying, Jeff, like reconcile that kind of, uh, the cost of rent with the actual sort of income that you make. And it's going to be super interesting to see how the stuff plays out with the property market. But maybe a good time to move to Hong Kong if you if you want a low rent. But I guess, I mean, you know, if we're thinking like sort of bigger picture, further afield, I mean, you know, this is a huge challenge to China's President Xi Jinping. I think the biggest since he took power. And it's coming right in the middle of all this trade tension with the US. And now we're seeing that lawmakers in Washington are sort of edging towards backing the protests. I mean, what action could, can, can they take? And how is this going to sort of play into the bigger global picture of what's going on between the US and China at the moment? Well, it's funny. I mean, they, oddly enough, I mean, not necessarily Hong Kong, but China. I mean, there's like Democrats and Republicans in Washington can agree on almost nothing. But one thing they can agree on is China, right? Where, where there does seem to still be a little bit of division is Hong Kong, um, where there is huge bipartisan efforts to pass a piece of legislation that would basically put Hong Kong's special status, both as, like in trade and other uh, issues, in, in the eyes of the United States, up for annual review. There's a ma major component of this piece of legislation that is passed in the House, may get voted on in the Senate pretty soon. But Donald Trump has been a little bit tepid in his remarks about Hong Kong. And, you know, part of that has to be down to the idea that his North Star right now is a trade deal with China um, because he's mm. heading into a, a, an election campaign. He is, you know, there are impeachment hearings going on. He needs to get other things for people to think about. And so he's not really in a position to I don't. He doesn't feel like he's in a position to come out and say sort of back the Hong Kong protesters because that's just going to irritate Xi, and uh, right. and and you know potentially put a real block in or a spanner in the works in terms of you know trying to figure out terms of a trade deal. So you know it's it, it'll be interesting to see what happens because there is this piece of legislation that is sort of moving through Congress against all odds, where very little is moving through Congress, and they also seem to have enough votes to even 
pass it, even if Trump were to veto it. So this could become a, a pretty serious point of contention, I would think. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guest host, Yuna Galani, and our colleagues, Robin Mack and Jeff Goldfarb. Hats off to our producers, Sharon Lamb and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.